Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. If you turn in that Bible to Genesis 1, that is the first book in the Bible, like you need for me to tell you that. And let's look at 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you would, turn to chapter 2, verse 3. We'll go with verse 2. By the seventh day, God completed his... Now, look at what it says here. He completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Then look down to 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. In other words, he took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work. So Lord, help us to understand Genesis 1 to 3. A lot of things we'll cover here, but at least this morning, this single theme of you're a working God, you created us in a working image, and you want us to work. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing, it's, it's incredible to me. The first thing we know about God is that he is a working God. In the beginning, he created. Then it says he rested from the work of creation. And so he created, he rested from the work, and then before the fall. Some people think, in fact, I had a pastor. It was about 23 years ago or so. Had a pastor that preached a message on work is what happened because of the fall. I thought to myself, huh? I was, I was breathless. I mean, I didn't want to be that guy, but I was that guy. I, was, I went up to him afterwards. I said, dude. I said, you need to read a little earlier in Genesis. Because a little earlier in Genesis, what you'll find out is, no, it's not, it's not a result of the fall. He's a working God that created us in his working image, and he put us to work. If you're going to be happy in this life, you're going to be a worker. And some of us are not happy in this life because we're trying to get around work. We're complaining about every bit of work that comes our way. And the Lord says, no, I'm a working God. You're a working God. You are hardwired, Matt. Matt, you're hardwired to work. So quit trying to get around it and just do it. Hmm. So let me say, I, uh, I know what it means to try to get around work. I, I, I was uh, throwing the discus. I was a discus thrower back in college and in high school and actually in junior high. So in the ninth grade, I decided I don't have anything to do this summer, so let me just go get extra good at the discus. So I went out to the discus ring, uh, which is at the high school, and I just started throwing. I just started throwing the discus and trying to get better at it. And all of a sudden, the guy that was in charge of the, uh, the janitorial service of my school district, school district number 428, he came by and he said, listen, his name is Waldo. He says, uh, are you a freedman boy? I said, yes, sir. He says, uh, want a job? So all of a sudden I had to make a decision. Do I want to get better at the discus this summer or do I want to earn? And I don't really remember how much. I don't know if it was $150 an hour or $250 an hour. Whatever it was, it sounded like an extraordinary amount of money to me. 
I thought, yes, sir, I want to work. And so he says, all right, come on. So for the next several summers, that's what I did. In the summers, I'd work for the school system. And basically what they would use you for uh, was, what they'd use kids for is go in and help the adults clean the building. And I mean clean. First job was at Harrison Junior High. Big building. Big building. Long hallways. A lot of classrooms. Harrison Junior High. And what we're supposed to do, go in there is clean everything. Clean the floors. So I mean, we had to clean, buff, wax the floors. Uh, we uh, went into classrooms and had to take water and soap and, and make sure all the desks were clean and, and all the windows were clean and everything that had a surface, everything was wiped down and clean. And I mean, I had a boss that took it seriously. Wish I could remember the guy's name. All I remember was I was Gomer Powell to his Sergeant Carter. Huh? I mean, he yelled and he screamed and he, if, if he said, go do something, you were walking, he wanted you to run. I mean, the whole thing, it was just like an intimidating deal, screaming and yelling and nothing was done quite right enough. And it's like, oh my word. I mean, but that building after three, it took three months. After three months, that building was clean. I mean, any surface in that building, just go ahead and put down some food and eat off of it. That's how clean that building was. I mean, it was clean. Now, that was that summer. It took us three months. After that summer, we uh, uh, went to the next summer. Now, next summer, I, I'm thinking, okay, got to go back to Harrison Junior High. Uh, Gomer Pyle here, reporting for Dooney. And I didn't go to Harrison. I went to my elementary school, Washington, which is literally about 150 yards away from the front door of my house. I mean, it's just right across the way. So I go to Washington. Now it's a different deal. Different boss, different school, different worldview. Because that was the school where smaller school, wholly different standards. The summer before, we worked on clean. This summer, I was allowed to throw some water on the floors and all the desks and the walls, make it look like we at least tried. I mean, this building's filthy. Who could ever get this clean? So we tried. Not very hard. No one's yelling at anybody. Everybody's sweet, telling jokes. It was, it was a blast. It was good. We were putting in time. We weren't cleaning. Little effort, little cleanliness. It didn't take us three months. It took us one month. After one month, the head janitor goes on a four-week vacation. He worked there a long time, earned Earned all the way up to four weeks of vacation. As he's leaving, he pitches me the key to the building and says, don't let it all burn down. No assignment, no nothing. So I thought, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, it was, it was clean, clean enough by his standards, so it's clean enough for me. So I started just loafing. I mean, walking up and down hallways and whistling Dixie. And yeah, we knew, we knew that song back then. Whistling Dixie, even in the north we knew it. We're whistling Dixie and looking at magazines in the library and occasionally got me down a book. Anybody remember the football book, Five Yard Fuller? I read Five Yard Fuller 20 times that summer. I mean, I was just loafing and having a good time, and, except it wasn't a good time. If anybody would have said to me, would you take that one-month cleaning job and two months of slackered versus three months of getting yelled at and cleaning? Which would you take? Proverbs 13, 4 says, A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. That word for sluggard, 
Atzel. Its root means to leave or neglect work. Diligent in the Hebrew, arutz, means sharp pointed. And always think in terms of laser focused in modern lingo. It's laser focused. It's strict decision. It's conscientious. So basically, one summer was hyper diligence. The next summer was sluggard. And the funny thing about it, if I'm given the choice, I would choose getting yelled at. I would choose Sergeant Carter and diligence and getting something done clean over slacking away the summer. Now, I've thought about why. Here's why. Time goes a lot faster when you're working hard than when you're loafing. I mean, those two months took forever. Second thing, when When you are diligent, you feel like you're part of something excellent. There's dignity in it. There's satisfaction in it. When you're working with the image of God within rather than fighting it, that's a good thing. We're hardwired for hard work. When you're working with that image, there's something that resonates. And then this, you just feel more honest. You feel more fulfilled. You feel more fully satisfied after an honest day's work over a day of sloth. Period. So... I'm walking across, I've told you this before, uh, but I'm walking across the street, Northside Drive, and I'm going from Whole Foods across the street to the store across the way. As I'm go- walking across, I hear my name, Matt. I think, whoa, no one really knows me in Jackson anymore. They, well, they once did, maybe, not anymore. So I'm thinking, I don't know what that, Matt. I look up again. Here's this guy. Now he looks pretty rough. But he doesn't look dangerous to me, so I just start walking to him. I put out my hand, Matt Friedman. He tells me his name. I said, oh, well, yeah, man. We hugged each other. It was a happy reunion. I knew him from the prison, and now he's out of prison. I said, tell me what you're doing. What are you doing? How's it going? He says, not going to lie, Matt. And he showed me a sign. Homeless and hungry need a blessing. I said, how's that working out for you? He says, but God's been real good to me, Matt. And by, by the way, I asked him how much he made. 80 bucks a day. I said, what do you do with that 80 bucks? Well, he says, that hotel over there is where I stay. And uh, I said, does it have like maid service? He says, every day, Matt. Does it have a pool? Has a pool, Matt. And by the way, he asked me for some money. I said, dude, you're doing better than I am. Maid service in a pool? I ain't got that. Clean up, clean, I mean, make your bed, right? Make my bed, Matt. The problem here is he's never going to be truly happy or holy living off of handouts when he has a body that is able and can work. Anybody remember Malcolm McMillan? The old sheriff here. By the way, I'm, I'm grumbling one day on the radio. I had a talk radio show and I'm grumbling one day about, you know, hey, you know, what we ought to do is uh, lock him up and throw away the key or some stupid thing like that. And, and Malcolm calls me up. He says, Matt, he said, you got time for lunch today? In fact, I did not have time for lunch today, but it was a sheriff calling. So I said, yes, sir. You know, and, uh, you know, he, he runs the jail. So I said, yes, sir. So uh, he said, well, I'll pick you up. And so he picks me up, takes me out there, shows me around the penal farm. And I am... So impressed with what he has going out there. And I just said at the end, hey, uh, would you, could you use a, 
a guy like me out here sharing. He says, I tell you what we need is you out here sharing, but having conversations, real conversations with guys. I don't, I don't mind about the Bible state, but real conversations with guys. I said, well, I think I could do that. So anyway, that started, whether we ever knew it or not, that kind of started Dayspring's prison ministry a couple years before we started Dayspring. So anyway, I really enjoyed that time. But one of the things he told me one day, I'm sitting in his office, he says, says uh, uh, Stuart Irby. I don't know if you remember the name Stuart Irby. Stuart Irby's a rich guy here in town, and uh, he was a good citizen and a good man. And uh, he says, Stuart Irby's flying us out, me and a couple other guys, to Texas to visit one of them Colson prisons. So a Colson prison was a prison that had a prison fellowship there. And prison fellowship had like three Bible studies a day. And, and once you left, they tried to get you work and got, tried to get you a good, clean halfway house to stay in. Really great program. So he came back and I, I scheduled some more time. And I said, I said uh, Sheriff, how did it go? He says, it was okay. I said, only okay? You didn't like the program? Because it's really a successful program. He says, it's okay. I said, well, what do you mean just okay? What, what could they have done better? He says, Matt, there's something redemptive about work. He says, when guys just do Bible studies, God's full redemption can't happen in them. They also need to work. Now, that's the penal farm. That's what they did out the penal They made these guys work. All day long, they were working something. And by the way, the guys out the penal farm loved it. They loved to work. They enjoyed working. Now, don't let them do that anymore. But in the old days, oh man, they just loved it, loved it, loved it. And I'm thinking, whoa, that's a lesson. If we want to get truly redeemed, we got to do what we're hardwired to do. And that is work. Now, I want to get back to God. God the worker. He works in Genesis 1 by speaking. <laughs> now, that's the job I want, right? Yeah. Let there be light. That's the work I'm talking about. Give me one of them jobs, Lord. In fact, every time I was out there getting cussed out by Sergeant Carter, all I could think about back there at Harrison Junior High was, Lord, I want to go get me one of them speaking jobs, something where I can do an air-conditioned room, and, and, and Lord, where I can talk for a living. But I want you to notice something. That's not the whole nine yards. In Genesis 2, God works with His hands to sculpt human bodies. Genesis 2, 7 and 21. He digs a garden, 2, 8. He plants an orchard, 2, 9. In a bit later, he tailors garments of skin. Now, I don't know how God does all that, but the inference there is he has hands and he uses those hands and he gets them in the dirt. And I think he says that because he wants us to recognize, and that's good living, to get your hands dirty. Now later, Scripture talks about this God in the flesh guy named Jesus. And Mark 6.3 calls him a tecton. Tecton. Literally, a craftsman. So we think that Joseph and Jesus probably weren't carpenters in the strictest sense, but they worked with their hands, they did some carpentry, but they also did stonework. Lots of things you could do as a tecton. But it means one who works with his hands. Now, isn't it interesting? When God comes in the flesh, the Father makes sure that this God in the flesh comes to a poor family who has to work their tail ends off to eat. And works a good, honest living as a tecton. God the worker, 
Jesus the worker. And then, of course, we could talk about Peter and the disciples, their workers as their fishermen. It's interesting to me, however, Paul also worked with his hands as a tent maker while he's planting churches. So he goes off, and as you know, Barnabas takes him, and they go off and they start planting churches. He goes on three, maybe four missionary journeys, and everywhere he goes, he's sharing the gospel. But at least in three of those places, at least three, probably more, in at least three of the places, he is laboring and supporting himself. In other words, he doesn't have a stipend from Jerusalem headquarters or from Antioch headquarters. He doesn't have money coming into him, so he has to work his way through. Now, eventually, I, I rather imagine people are taking up offerings for him. But the fact of the matter is, he is supporting himself in a place like Corinth in Acts 18. In Thessalonica, it talks about that in 2 Thessalonians 3. And later on, at Ephesus, where he has some of his greatest ministry, talks about that in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 4. In other words, in at least three of Paul's most exciting launch pads for ministry to the known world at that time, evangelism at church planning prospered with no ministry money available from headquarters. Now, he had a mentor named Gamaliel. Remember him? Talks about him a little bit in Acts. Gamaliel was his mentor, was his rabbi. And instead of Gamaliel, not in the Bible, but in another place, it says, Gamaliel once said this, all study of Torah, which is not combined with work, will ultimately be futile and lead to sin. Don't think about studying the Bible without working along with it. By the way, we're writing a book. It's written. It comes out in July. We've written a book on this very topic, and it says it's very dangerous to go to church, read the Bible, without working somehow for the kingdom while you're doing it. You need to be sure to be involved in something like a prison ministry, a pro-life ministry. Uh, Go to the public schools and have a Bible club. You need to be going to the strip clubs and sharing Jesus. You need to be doing these things because if you don't, it is very injurious to someone. Undigested learning is fatal. And so, Gamila recognized this. It says, don't even think about Torah without working along with it. Now, that's the Judeo-Christian ethic. Gamela was a Jew, he was not a Christian. But the Judeo-Christian ethic had some really incredible examples of why it's important to work. Now that's interesting because Greek culture taught, we despise manual labor. Greek culture taught, let's do everything we can not to get our hands dirty. But at the time of Christ, there were 15,000 to 20,000 ordinary priests. Think about that. At the time of Christ, there were 15 to 20,000 priests. The vast majority, like almost all of them, work with their hands to support their families. Rabbis at the time of Christ knew they couldn't make a living teaching, for Torah forbade charging disciples for the honor of learning. And so both priests and rabbis were bivocational. It was honorable. You worked not only in ministry, but you worked at a secular job in order to provide your ministry possibility. Y'all, here's the point. Here's the point. You are bivocational ministers. Can I just get a declaration there of everybody say with one voice right now, I am a bivocational minister. Here we go. Now that means, yes, you have a job that gives you money to support you and your family. 
But the other thing that that supports is your ministry. Everybody here is a bivocational minister made in the image of a working God, which means this. You are called to work for the kingdom. It says the priesthood of believers means you are priests. Now, don't look over at your neighbor. Don't do it. Don't look at your neighbor wondering, where's the, uh, where's the collar thing? Where's the, the white priest thing? That's not a priest. Not necessarily. A priest is someone that says, I've given my life up to God. I've abandoned myself to him and whatever he wants, that's what I'm going to do. I am going to do the will of the Lord. That's the first thing in your life. The second thing is, I got to get a job to support my priesthood. So your first thing in life is you're a minister. And your second thing in life is, how do I support that ministry? And that is fundamentally what I want to talk to you about real quick in four quick points, and they will be quick. Number one, you need to discover what you're supposed to be doing in ministry. Everybody here needs to say, okay, I need to know my spiritual gift. Do you know your spiritual gift? In Romans 12, it talks about seven of them. That's a great place to go to. There's, there's lots more than that, but that's a good place to go to for a simple list of seven. Mine is teaching. So I have long ago discovered that basically with my life and with my energy, I need to be communicating the gospel. Now, I think you need to know your spiritual gift. Everybody here needs to know it. But you also need to know, maybe we need to do a Wednesday uh, Day Spring University on spiritual gifts here soon. But the other thing we need to know is our passion. Where does God want me to place that gift in this? And my passion in ministry has largely been huh, prison, the needy, the poor. I believe that's a passion of Scripture. I think it's a non-negotiable passion of Scripture, but it's something that the Lord linked my heart into. And so primarily... With my ministry, I need to be getting to some people who are needy and making sure they hear the word of the Lord. That's my ministry. That's my passion. Now, third thing is you need to get moving. Figure out what your spiritual gift is. What's your passion? Get moving. The happiest people on earth have figured out their burden in ministry and they're carrying it well. So there's all kinds of possibilities here. I... Uh, Someone said in this, and it happens in some other churches I know about, is uh, I really care about people. Uh, I got the gift of generosity, the gift of giving. I got the gift of hospitality. I just really care about people. And the Lord says, all right, what do you have a passion for? Well, I have a passion for guys like me. Yeah, what's that mean? I like motorcycles. I like guys with motorcycles. I like that whole crowd. Rough and tumble, tatted up people, rum rum. You know, I don't, that's that's my that's my that's my world right there. Well, guess what? Jesus says we can deal with that. Let's deal with that. Why don't we find a way for you to invite these people more and more and more into your life? Figure out what that means, and include your testimony, include scripture, include prayer, and all of that. Is that possible? Oh, you kidding me? Of course it's possible. We need to learn, y'all. We need to learn our spiritual gift. What's our passion? And we need to get moving. That is the primary dynamic of your life. Your primary dynamic is not, hey, I make widgets. The primary dynamic is not, hey, I mop floors. Hey, or like my dad. I'll talk about him in just a minute here. My dad, 
He sold Goodyear tires. Don't mess with Firestones, folks. Don't do it. Friedemann's and Goodyear, that's the deal, okay? We do Goodyear tires. And I still do, whether I really believe it or not. We do Goodyear tires. And so, whole point is, Jerry, that's not your main deal. That's what you do to support the main deal. First thing you need to do is, what is my main deal? What is my ministry? That's number one. Two, find work then that can support you in the ministry. Eventually find work that provides substantial help to a culture that needs that work. So I, I love, I got, we got a kid grew up down the street. He actually is a roommate with Elijah. And uh, he just said, you know, I don't want to do college. Don't like college. Don't want to do college. Well, listen, that's fine. Don't do college. What are you going to do? He, he's, he, he apprenticed himself out to some, uh, some plumbers. He's loving plumbing. He loves it. He's learning. He's, he's going to have his own business someday. I don't know when that's going to be. He'll have his own. And I guarantee you, we're going to use him when he has his own business. We love what he does. So, uh, Hannah woke up last week and, and, and noticed there's water all over my floor. Uh-oh. And guess who she calls? Our plumber guy. And guess what he's doing? He's working on Saturday. And guess what he's doing? He's fixing my daughter's stuff. Now, that is a great job that provides a notable service for people that need help. By the way, whoever works on air conditioners, I love you even more than plumbers. I'm just saying. We had one of those the other day. Thank God there's someone that works on air conditioners. These are good things. But those things, while being good, can't be laid to rest on their own. They need to support something more kingdom central. And I'll say that your vocation, your job is incredibly important. And uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He's given us jobs. Third thing is this. Recognize that your workplace is one of your greatest places of ministry. I just said, hey, it's not the greatest thing. But you know what's pretty cool when you can start morphing things together. Here's my ministry. Here's my job. Oh, my goodness. Look what the Lord's doing. Bing. He's put them together. How do you do that? You start saying, these people at my workplace, these are people God wants me to love on. These people who I go do plumbing for, who I lay tiles for, these people, whoever, these people who I'm working for need prayer. They need a witness. They need to hear my testimony. And on it goes, y'all. It's a cool thing when all of a sudden what you work begins morphing in at least partially, if not wholly, begins morphing in with your ministry. John Wesley said this, your holiness makes you as conspicuous as the sun. Love cannot be hid any more than light. And least of all, when it shines forth in action, when you exercise yourselves in the labor of love and goodness of every kind, your work is your primary witness since it will be what you spend most of your time doing. Small groups in a workplace is one thing. I got the president, Treveca, said, man, I wish I had one more pastor. He's getting older now, getting up to retirement age. I said, I wish I had one more pastor. Because if I did, what I would do is say, hey, you people that go to work, let's make sure your workplace is a place of ministry. 
And one of the things he had in mind was say, what we need is not just small groups that meet at Sunday night in homes. We need small groups that meet at lunchtime in workplaces. We need to start ministry in our places of work. And you say, well, I don't have an hour. Fine. You're in a teacher's lounge. By the way, what a great place to be a witness for Jesus. Teacher lounges. Those are hard places. I'm just going to tell you right now, teacher lounge is a hard place. Wouldn't it be great to go in there and say, hey, let's snag three or four of you. Let's go to another room. Let's talk to Jesus on behalf of our kids. Let's talk to Jesus on behalf of the school. Let's talk to Jesus on behalf of our principal. And start saying, hey, even if we only have 15 minutes, let's grab folks together. Have a small group. Let's have some Bible. Let's have some prayer. Let's be salt and light in this school system. Salt and light in this home that we're doing our plumbing in. Salt and light with this towel where we're laying. Salt and light in this schoolroom. Salt and light, Lord Jesus, where I sell my widgets. Wow. Imagine what could happen in and through Dayspring, if we all of a sudden start saying, workplace is one of my greatest places of ministry. And lastly, this. Your work supports ministry there in the workplace and beyond the workplace. But I will say, I hope you're listening. Work is a great servant, but it is a life-sucking master. Did you hear me? It will suck the life right out of you. And many people get to the place in their life where they hate work when in fact the matter is God hardwired them to be workers. Because too often that work became master instead of servant. My dad, or he said, was known in my hometown as Freedy. By the way, all my friends call me Freedy. All my friends call me Freedy. If you want to say hi, Freedy, right now, you could do that. You don't have to do it. So I'm just saying. My grandpa was named Freedy. My dad was named Freedy. I'm named Freedy. You say, I never heard anybody call you that. You just did. A minute ago, somebody over here said, hey, Freedy. So he was, a, he was the owner of Freedom and Service Store. Grandpa was before and handed it on my dad, Freedy, Freedom and Service Store. Sold Goodyear tires. I worked for him for a long time, a lot, of, a lot of times when he just needed help. He worked 45 to 50 hours a week. He was the owner. He was going to be there. And that was an important thing. It was important for our family. It was important for the community. It was important for farmers. He provided a service that the community needed. And that's actually the best kind of work, I'll tell you right now. But he provided a service, and that's where he found much of his identity. But it wasn't the greatest joy of his life. The greatest joy of his life was his ministry, which was me. <laughs> yeah, there are four other kids, but I think mostly me. It was me, my mother, his family. It was his Sunday school class. He loved teaching Sunday school. And his lay ministry as a Gideon and a lay speaker. That's what raced his motor. And if you're around him long, you would find out that the reason he did Freedom and Service Store is because it allowed him to do these other things for the glory of God. Now, he helped a lot of people out at Freedom and Service Store, but really, he really resonated with the other part of his life, and that was 
his primary ministry. My sister was at a big conference, Overseas Mission Society. Uh, she's on the board. So she's at this conference and she walked up to the guy and says, Hi, how are you? My name's, uh, my name's Lisa Friedman Osley. And the guy says, Friedman. Now she still uses that as a middle name because a lot of people recognize that in our world. Lisa Friedman says, Friedman? He says, I knew a Friedman. I said, yeah. She goes, where are you from? She says, I'm from Hoisington, Kansas. <laughs> says, I happen to know the Freedomans you knew. We were the only ones in town. <laughs> says, you knew my dad, Jerry. Says, your dad was my mentor. He taught me not just how to be a Christian, but how to be a Christian businessman. Your dad changed my life. My, my sister couldn't wait to go home. And write that to all of us. Make sure we all knew that. And I just have to wonder, how many people like that are there out there? Because Dad says, my world doesn't begin and end at Freedom and Service Store. I do Freedom and Service Store not just to minister there, but to minister in what I think is God has hardwired me for, not just for work, but for work in His kingdom. Teaching the Bible. Being a lay speaker. Handing out Gideon Bibles. Remember the Gideon Bibles? And, uh, and apparently mentoring other businessmen. Pretty cool. Y'all, you are hardwired for work. Getting your hands dirty, yes. But also, and most of all, to work for the kingdom of God. He has hardwired you to be extraordinary for Him. Be Extraordinary for him.